Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. In their book, Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon, authors Dave Kinneman and Mark Matlock did a number of interviews with teenagers and young adults as a part of the Barna Research Group in which they wanted to find out what kind of faith do young adults have in a time that is becoming more and more obviously sort of a post-Christian culture or post-Christian moment. And in this research that they did in 2019, they found that young adults at least fell into four categories. Um, There were prodigals or ex-Christians who no longer identified themselves as Christians, despite having maybe grown up or attended Protestant or Catholic churches as children or as teenagers. Um, There was a group called, they called nomads or lapsed Christians. And these were people who identify themselves as Christian, but haven't attended church during the past month. And the vast majority of the nomads said that they haven't been involved with a faith community for six months or more. There was a third group that were called habitual churchgoers. And they described themselves as Christians that have attended church at least once in the past month, yet do not have foundational core beliefs or behaviors associated with being sort of an intentional or an engaged disciple. In the last category, and they found of the young adults who grew up in the church, only 10% were in this last category. This last category they named resilient disciples. And resilient disciples were Christians who attend church at least monthly and engage with their church more than just attending worship services, trust firmly in the authority of the Bible, are committed to Jesus personally and affirm he was crucified, raised from the dead to conquer sin and death, and lastly, express desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. This category of the resilient disciple, while the research was about young adults, teens, people who grew up in the church, it became a phrase that was of greater and greater use, particularly when the pandemic hit, particularly when there was so much chaos around our political cycles and all these kinds of things where Christians were shall we say, maybe not covering themselves in resilient glory um, with many of the challenges that our world and our culture um, have been facing the last year or two. This idea of, man, there are some, maybe only 10% of professing or, or formerly at least raised as Christians who end up being resilient disciples has become something of a, uh, a focal point for many of the ministers that I know, many of the thinkers um, whose work I follow. And when I think of what it takes to be a resilient disciple, what it takes to be a person who walks with the Lord through all sorts of different kinds of seasons, through all sorts of different kinds of challenges, um, unexpected, expected, and otherwise, um, I think in part, I will say, of my best friend in all the known world, uh, Mr. Jesse Carlucci. Now, Jess, that is a completely unfair introduction and setup because I have now I have positioned you as the 10 percent 
as in some uh, elite category <laughs> of resilient <laughs> disciples. You you better not mess this up now. Uh, <laughs> all right. So so first of all, you have to know you have to know that uh, uh, Dave is is one of the like six people on the planet that still regularly refers to me as Jess. So to hear him say Jesse Carlucci is is really weird. And if you do call me Jess, I'll look at you funny. But but yeah, well, it's a, well, it's I've, always, look, I've always said I've always said this. I always said Jess Carlucci is the one person who makes me believe in limited atonement. I've always said that. I've always said that Jesus is saving you at all makes me think there's got to be limits to something. I mean, uh, I mean, amen, <laughs> amen to that. And, and, and uh, you know, that was one of the things that John Wesley held on to as, as he's coming out of that. He's coming out of a reformed tradition too. So I'll, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> I joke around. I joke around with Pastor Ray. I go, I go, look, Ray, we all got to be reformed for a season of life. And then we have to grow up, you know, and then we have to, um, he's, he's not, he is very much grown up and still reformed. So I, I know it's possible. Um, but Wesleyans that we are, look, we think even, even the Jess Carlucci's of the world, even the Jesse Roberts can be saved. Now, I have you on in part just as an excuse to talk to you um, because I haven't had you on the previous seasons. And I didn't have you on the previous seasons because you're just my friend. And like, why would I, why would I do that? Um, but I have you on genuinely because you are a person who loves Jesus. You are a person um, who's lived some life and, you know, everybody gets dealt different hands. And I think the hand you got dealt was a unique one um, through which the Lord is saving you, yourself, your wife, um, your son, you know, all the things. And I thought, you know what, like, sometimes when you're really close to people, um, you forget how sort of special is the grace of God in the lives of the people you're used to hearing mm -hmm. about the grace of God in. And I thought, and I don't know if it was even my thought, or if it, maybe it was Lisa. Um, but I was talking to somebody and they were like, why don't you have Jess on? Or they probably said, Jesse, why don't you have Jesse? <laughs> why don't you have Jesse on? And, and my reaction was like, because it's Jess. So what are you talking about? Everybody knows him. Like, that's, not, that's old news, you know? Um, and, then, and then the more, of course, I thought about it, I was like, man, you know, your story because of the Lord is, is so genuinely encouraging. And, and yet the, those stories, like I said, they're closest to us. We can take for granted. And I don't want to take it for granted. And I don't want to, I don't want to keep it from maybe encouraging people out there who, Maybe they feel like in that 10%, you and I are not young adults. Let's not get that twisted. We are very much adults, unfortunately. And, um, and yet, like, this is a moment in which 10% of a, of a pretty particular population um, is staying with Jesus. And their experience is they feel almost completely homeless. They completely feel weird amongst their peers. They feel weird in the workplace. They feel weird at church. They feel like everything doesn't quite fit. And yet they're still sticking with Jesus. They're still sticking with the word. And, and so I'm like, there's people out there who even listen to this podcast that I don't know anything about who will hear things and be like, oh my gosh, there's other people out there who are, who are still sticking with Jesus, who haven't gotten weird, who haven't given up, who haven't whatever. And so I just know, like, there needs to be more of those kinds of stories, even if you or I get used to them. There needs to be more of those stories to just encourage whatever that 10%, whoever might be out there that is saying, like, is it still livable um, right. to be in this world, face all these things and to follow Jesus? So 
Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> welcome, uh, Mr. Jesse Carlucci, uh, to the podcast. Uh, totally ridiculous setup, Jess, but um, if you don't mind, um, I want to just uh, ask you to tell a little bit of your story, but about how you came to know the Lord, how you grew up, um, and 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 let's just see where the Lord takes it. But just with that idea that. Yeah. We're regular folk trying to follow Jesus. And I think more people need to hear from regular folk like us trying to follow Jesus because uh, he's so good. And, and so there's just a lot more hope out there than maybe some people realize. So with that, without, without further babbling from me, which is the story of your life, having yeah. to do further babbling. From me. <laughs> oh gosh. Rewards in heaven. Um, tell, us, tell us a little about, about how you grew up. Tell us. Okay. From. How do you, who are yeah. you? So, um, Oh, you know, with a with a setup like that, uh, it's, it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to hard to go back to head back to the beginning. And I I, I want to preface anything any of this by by saying like you know uh, w- when we talk about like a Christian life, I, I don't um my life is still going. <laughs> so right, right. like I haven't we haven't I haven't achieved anything right. right. So right. so stay tuned, you know. Right. Uh, but uh, but to that but to that point, you know I. I, I know that all that all end in glory because that's the promise of the Lord. But um, but the life is still going. So uh, to to that to that point, um, I was born in a in a really weird uh, environment. My my mom at the time I was I was her, I was her second kid, right? So I was uh, she was nineteen years old when she had me, and my and my brother is is three years older than me, which means that she was sixteen when she had him, right? Because of simple math. Uh, my my biological father was was not uh, was was a, was a troubled guy. You know, he he came from a from a really rough background. So um, really early on in life, really early on in life, I, I experienced uh, the the depravity of human beings, mm. uh, and not not necessarily like through like directly through through the stuff that my that that my biological dad did. Uh, but through, you know, just life, right? So uh, let me give you a, for instance, um, my biological father, when I was, I don't know, let's say two years old, he uh, was in, he was involved in a, in a drug deal that had, that had gone uh, pretty poorly. Uh, and he owed some people some money. As a result, we ended up with uh, with a with a room full of armed men uh, holding holding us hostage until my dad could uh, could actually pay them, which he which he didn't end up being able to do. Right. So so you know I I grew up in this in this really weird environment, which which to me like as I talk back on it, especially through through the the forty two years that I've been alive, um, it's it's really strange to think about. But I, as a really young kid, I was really really aware of like the danger of life, <laughs> like my life is a dangerous thing. Life's not this, uh, uh, you know, a lot of kids grow up. I'm hoping my son Elijah grows up with this, with this kind of like, uh, almost like a storybook view of what life is like, you know, like a, uh, really optimistic and really like, Oh, you can trust people. I did not have that at all. Right. Um, there was uh uh, as as the story kind of fleshes out, I'll, I'll be able to to illustrate that a little bit more. But so I came from this place of 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 like of just depravity. 
part of that was the time in America. I was born in 1979, right? Which would be the end of the seventies, right? So, so cocaine had just ravaged our, our country. Uh, cocaine ravaged our, you know, my, my, my family. And, and I was also born in this, in a, in a, in a, um, in a really strange economic place, right? I was born in Iowa at the, at the end of the seventies. So there were all these like, like massive uh, sociological shifts and massive uh, historical shifts, right? So, so when I say that I was born in, in, in like this weird depravity, that's it, right? It, it's a kind of a, a milieu of depravity. That's, that's, that isn't, that isn't like, you know, uh, my mom's a bad person or even my, my biological dad who did a lot of bad things, you know, what it is, is this was a, a troubled time. So my story isn't unique in that, right? It's, it's, it's the kind of like, you know, uh, you can, you can think of like, like rock star movies that, that anytime you get to the seventies, you kind of do this uh-oh moment uh-oh. where everybody's doing cocaine and um, drug deals gone bad. So that's where I, that's where I came from. Uh, my, my mom, because she was, uh, she was, she was raised Catholic um, and, and still is a, a Catholic and she loves the Lord in a, in a, in a really cool and unique way. Um, she, she married my biological dad, who was, who was Mormon, uh, was from a Mormon, uh, Mormon family. And so the church in the 1970s, the Catholic church uh, was pretty quick to excommunicate people. So they excommunicated her. So as, as I was growing up, right. I have this, this sense of like, Oh my gosh, there's this depravity. Right. And I have this, this, oh, and, and the church, which is the, which, which kind of presents itself as the thing that's supposed to deal with the depravity is not dealing with the depravity in, in, you know, in the right ways. So, so I had this narrative in, in my head while I was growing up of like, you know, uh, kind of that place that Paul gets to at the end of Romans seven of like, of like, what, well then who's supposed to say <laughs> like, like, Oh my God, uh, destroying the world. Like, you know, the, the farming is, is going to hell in a handbasket. Like what, who's supposed to save us. Right. Um, so that's the, that's the, uh, that's the background hum of like everything that that's going to happen up until, you know, probably my high school, um, my high school years. So I grew up not, not necessarily not even in the church, but having, like a, a, dis, a disdain, um, not even an, not even an apathy, like an active um, and, and reason for it, right? Like it wasn't it wasn't like just teenage angst. It wasn't like nobody understands me. Although I did get to that point, it was like a genuine like like well, the church had an opportunity to to help my family and legitimately <laughs> turned its back on on you know a sixteen year old girl who needed who needed help. Um, so, you know, that, that, that really framed how I, how I thought about the church and how I thought about, um, human beings at the time. Uh, so, um, my, my biological father just kind of, he, he kept spinning further and further out of, out of control. So that by the time I was, oh, I was, I was two or three years old, um, my mom in, a, in an attempt to try to get away from him moved out to California and, and my biological, my biological father uh, followed us out to California uh, because he loved my mom and just didn't know how to do that. And he loved his kids and didn't know how to do that. And was a, you know, was, was trying to, was trying to get things on track, but didn't know how to do that. And there weren't a whole lot of resources for him to, to figure out how to do that. Um, 
but you know wherever this man went he kind of just you know he he left a, a a trail of of um really really bad choices so in my early life uh, without this without this idea or understanding of of you know that that there you know i i always had an understanding of like a mystical there is another world or something like that out there um but i i wasn't the, the church wasn't something that, that was anywhere near me. And I didn't have a, like the strongest family structure. Right. Um, so there weren't a lot of structures in my life. And, you know, I didn't have uh, like a, like a pattern of life. I didn't have a rhythm of life. You know, it was kind of like, I, I was really in like a, just a total state of nature. Right. I was I was completely feral <laughs> and me and my, and me and my brother were entirely feral um, to the point where like, you know, like we, we were in the neighborhood, whatever neighborhoods we were in, we ended up in, you know, we would, we would jump into people's backyards and steal their pomegranates and break them open on the, on the sides of curbs. And, you know, that was like our lunch. You know? <laughs> we were, we were totally feral. My mom's trying to like raise us. We don't really have, I don't really have any any structures in our life uh, so you know you can imagine what school would be like for somebody <laughs> like like me right a feral kid you know like you know picture putting you know a, a totally picture putting a coyote in like a dog behavior class right like <laughs> that's not gonna work right um so I, so um pretty early on school was a school was a challenge for me but it wasn't a challenge because like like the academic stuff was hard. It was a challenge because I didn't want to be inside. Um, I didn't want to be, um, you know, subjected to somebody else's anything, right? So um, I remember there was a point when I was younger than Elijah, I was about, I was about, uh, I think I was in first grade. Um, and uh, my, my teacher, my first grade teacher, I remember her face, but I remember her name. She, she pulled me aside one day and um, she kind of goes, she kind of, she, she hands me like this letter and she's like, Hey, I need you to, to, to bring this to your mom. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I didn't do anything. <laughs> like I didn't break anything. I didn't steal anything. I don't think I did anything wrong. And she's like, no, 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 this is um, you. Uh, I, I think you, I think you should be in this gate program. And I was like, I don't, like putting me in another gate sounds terrible. Like <laughs> that sounds like I, like something I shouldn't do. Um, she goes, no, no. And so she tried, she tried to explain to me what, what like gate was. Um, and I, I was like, I was like, this is, this is weird. But I also started to kind of feel this little sense of like, oh my gosh, just kind of cool. Somebody recognizes something about me. So I bring this letter home to my mom and I show her and, and um, my, my mom was not receptive uh and god bless her it was all it was all i think for the right reasons but her she was like you know her response was was essentially like like um you're you're a normal kid i want you to be a normal kid right um so so she didn't allow me to go into like this gate program when i was like in, in first or second grade and i think a lot of things hinged on I think a lot of things ended on that. But I think the Lord was saving me from probably a lot of uh, pride um, in in having grown up uh, in in that situation. So school was a was a was a train wreck for me, um, mostly because when I showed up, 
it wasn't, there was nothing interesting. There was nothing, there wasn't anything challenging. There was, there was never anything challenging. Um, it was really just a lot of structures. And, and I, and I knew that I was supposed to be suspicious of structures because of how I was raised. You know, I was feral. I was, I was, you know, I, I wasn't the, Where's yeah, your, where was your biological father at this point? You know, it, ah, that's a good question. Whatever. So um, he had followed us out here and he had tried to get his, his life back on track. Um, he, he started, uh, you know, this was the eighties. So, you know, talk about a lawless time. Um, my biological father was, was an addict. He was addicted to everything. Um, he was addicted to my mom. He was addicted to trying to be a dad. He was, he was addicted to, to cocaine. He was addicted to alcohol. He was addicted to everything. Um, and when he got out here, um, he, he got a job uh, of all things as like a beer salesman. Right. So he was like a, like a representative for Kieran beer. Um, and he lived in Tustin. He lived in a, uh, an apartment complex in Tustin. And, and I, re I remember this, this place very, very well. Um, and, and it's, it's kind of burned into my, into my brain. Uh, but he's trying to get his life back on track, you know, so he's, he's dating a lot. Um, but there were, there were, there were constant relapses. He would come and pick us up on, on, uh, weekends. Um, and, and my mom had to, had to go through a lot of court battles, um, a lot of court battles to just to try to, um, to try to protect us, to try to protect me and, and, and my older brother, because the court wanted us to, to have a relationship with our dad. Uh, and it wasn't, he wasn't a healthy guy. So we, sh we shouldn't have had a relationship with our dad, or we should have had one that was, that was more, um, uh, more supervised. We were, we were abused in, in every way you could possibly be abused by him. We were, we were physically abused. We were, we were beat up pretty frequently. Um, I remember, uh, one Sunday morning where um, I think my brother took too much time in the shower and my biological father threw him down the stairs, like literally threw him down the stairs. Um, and we would, you know, we would try to tell my, we would try to tell my mom about this stuff, but we also loved him. You know, we, 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 he was our dad, you know, so we, we loved him. So we wanted to like, you know, we would come home with, with stuff on us and we'd make up stories you know, all the, all the stuff you would, you would think, you know all the all the Saturday morning special stuff that you that you hear that that kids do when they're when they're being abused. We did, um, but we were also um, neglected by him very very frequently. So he would he would come and pick us up on a on a Saturday morning or on a on a Friday night, and then we would we would be alone literally all day on Saturday, and he would come home late Saturday night. So we spent you know we spent more time being fair. <laughs> <laughs> which gave us time to get into a lot of trouble, but it also, you know, it also didn't, didn't do a lot for, for our perception of ourselves and our perception of, of structure and this sort of thing. Um, so uh, fast forward a little bit to us being, I was, I was probably in fourth. I was, I was waiting. I remember waiting when I was a kid to, to turn 10 years old because at 10 years old, the judge told me, you know, I was 10 years old. The, the, the judge told me that I could choose not to go to my biological father's house. Mm. So he had these weekend visitations. And I, and I remember just, just counting down the days till I was 10 years old. Um, and I think he knew uh, what my choice would be because when I, when I turned 10, 
Um, he, he, boy, he bought me presents, you know, he bought a Voltron, right? Brought me this full like Voltron thing. You can stick oh, everything yeah. together. So he, so he bought me this, this stuff. Um, and, and I did, I, I chose, I, cho- I, I chose that I, that I would not be, I would not be going to his house anymore. And I, you know, my mom had me talk, tell him that, you know, that, that like, Hey, you know, I just don't think this is good. My older brother still went on weekends to go, to go see him. Um, but it was right about then that he actually relapsed in a, in a pretty, in a pretty bad way. Um, he had been, uh, he had remarried um, by this time. He had re- remarried um, a really kind woman named um, Jenna, and they had a they had uh, they had a a little boy, um, and it was right before I I, I turned ten years old. Um, this little boy was one or two years old, um, and he ended up actually drowning. Um, this terrible tragic. He uh, he he drowned in a, in a jacuzzi. Uh, my my biological father was supposed to be watching him. Um, the best anybody can figure out is that he got into some kind of stupor, was was using and just you know fell asleep really really badly and and um, and so my little brother drowned in, in a jacuzzi, and I think it I think it spun as it, you know as it would I think it just spun um, my dad out it spun him out in a bad way, um, so he started to become. Uh, abusive to to Jenna, and he started to become abusive to kind of just everybody around him, um, in a in a like in a heightened way. He had always been that. Um, usually, it was directed just towards towards me and and my older brother Jeremy, but it got I think it got worse. And just after I turned ten, uh, his wife um, Jenna showed up to showed up to our house and and told us. Um, uh, you know, we had spent a lot of time trying to tell her like, Hey, this is, this is the stuff that we can expect that you can expect from him. I know that, that his life is getting, looks like it's getting on track, but it's, you know, it's not, and this is what we grew up with. Um, and so she showed up one night when he was supposed to be there to pick us up, um, in tears, she'd clearly been, been hit. Um, and she, she said, you know, no, this is, this, this is, um, you know, he, he is the person that you've been telling us that he was. So that ended right there. Um, pretty squarely our, our direct relationship with him. Um, that was a tough time. That was a tough time. Uh, you know, being 10, you have just enough awareness. And I think about, I think about my son who's, who's eight, he's going to be turning nine here in just a couple months. And he's got a lot of awareness, uh, that you don't, He's got like this sneaky awareness of he observes he observes everything. He knows how you're feeling at all points, right? Which means you know, being a dad in the middle of a pandemic, you have to you got to be on your A game. Um, but he observes all things, and I, and I remember being that kid, right? I remember especially because this is a really traumatic time. I remember just knowing how everybody's feeling, being like hyper aware of how everything is happening around them. So, um, so we, we severed relationship, this, the relationship with him and, and it was finally like the court backed it up. Um, Jenna was, was supportive of it. And we were, we were finally, there was, a, it was a huge relief to me, but it was also stupid confusing. Like I, I didn't, 
you know, you're not supposed to want to not be around your dad. You know, you're not supposed to like have this, have this, you know, have that, that, that feel, that feeling. So, um, at the same time, uh, my grandparents on my mom's side had moved to Iowa. So we, um, we kind of followed them. I'm not entirely sure why, um, as, as a, as a small excursus, um, (laughs) I have, I have a, a, a little brother and sister. Um, so let me back up a little bit and tell you about my, my stepdad. Um, when I was about six years old, my mom met uh, this wonderful man called Dominic. And as you might imagine, Dominic Dom. Carlucci, <laughs> um, he is, he is uh, as Italian as it comes and he's, he's, he's from New Jersey. So, so she met him, they fell in love and my mom finally had somebody who would like love her and, and take care of her and do the things like a husband should do. And it was really, really awesome because she was, she was taken care of. And it was a relief for me and my brother because we, you know, we could actually, there were, there were structures that were starting to form around us. Right. Um, there, whereas like we had grown up completely feral up to this point, you know, I, Jeremy was about nine and I was about six. Um, but now all of a sudden there were structures that were starting to kind of form around us. And there was, there was comfort in that. And there was, there were some really cool things in that. Um, after my mom and, and dad, I call, I call Dominic my dad. That's my, he's my dad, right? Um, so after my mom and dad got married, um, they had my little brother, uh, my little brother whose name is Rocky. His name's not Rocky. His name is actually also Dominic, but um, he was born, he, he's, he, at the time he was born, he set a world record for being the most premature uh, baby ever. Right. So he was born in the second trimester ever, ever, ever to, and ever to survive. Right. So he was born in the second trimester, um, and survived. They, they did open heart surgery on him without any anesthetic and everything. They didn't think at the time that that babies, uh, the babies felt anything. So, um, so Rocky was born, um, and that was cool. I had a little brother, you know, we, we were, we had a family. We, We were starting to have something that seemed like a, like a family. I mean, it wasn't a normal family by any stretch of the imagination, but it was a family, you know, we, we, uh, if you, if you know, 80s TV shows, we definitely resonated with Roseanne a little bit more than we did with like family ties. Right. It wasn't <laughs> like we didn't have sweaters and crap. That was weird to us. Right. But we did like yell at each other a lot and eat. So like, you know, that we were, we were much more, we were much more Roseanne. So we had this family and um, there were structures that were around us and it was, and it was cool. And um, this was about the time that we lived in Mission Viejo. We, we were, we were, uh, we were in Southern California and, and all of that structure uh, helped me to make that decision when I turned 10 that like, yeah, um, I, I can, I can start to see what, what a family looks like. And I know that I can't have my biological father in, I can't be there. I can't be this divided person, right? So um, right about the time I turned 10, we moved to Iowa, um, of all places, Iowa. Um, that lasted for about a year. Uh, when I moved to Iowa, it was, um, I was the California kid and I didn't know this, but like um, Iowa farm kids are like tough. So like I, <laughs> like my first day of school, I'm in, 
third grade, fourth grade. It was the end of fourth grade. So I, the first day of school, um, <laughs> I just got jumped. <laughs> third graders just start. They, it starts on the basketball court, basketball court. They throw a basketball at my face and then just start pounding on me. And, and I'm like, I don't, I don't understand this. So uh, life in life in Iowa was hard for me <laughs> wow. because like, because like, you know, you're, you're a California kid in the middle of farmland and people were not, they weren't like, you were not cool or you were cool and they like weren't. So they, I don't know. I don't know what it was, but I got, I got beat up on a lot. Um, and I didn't have any friends. <laughs> and so, um, I spent a lot of time with books. Um, I started reading books a lot when I was, um, in Iowa, the first one that I actually made it through was the, the, uh, the adaptation of the Batman movie. Let's go. Um, <laughs> that exists. And it was so, that existed. Um, and boy, I just ate it up and, and I couldn't, I couldn't watch the movie because of its rating or something like that, or it was, it, it wasn't out. Right. So um it wasn't like out on on vcr <laughs> on yeah. tape so so i just read it and and i just fell in love with books uh my parents would you know i would do something stupid i would get grounded my parents would ground me and be like cool books so they started taking away my books um yeah <laughs> it was like the only way to punish me right uh so in iowa is where i where i started to kind of like fall in love with books and you know we have this this family that's starting to form this structure around my around my life that's starting to form um, I'm starting to kind of fall in love with, with books, um, but not like school, just books. I just really like books and reading books. Um, we moved back from Iowa because Iowa was not working out for us. Uh, and we moved back to, to Mission Viejo here in Southern California. And we find out that my, um, there was a show, uh, there's a show called uh, America's Most Wanted. Um, and my biological father, uh, one night showed up on, on America's most wanted. Uh -oh. Um, yeah. So, uh, he had, uh, while we were in Iowa, he had attempted to kill his father-in-law. Um, so Jenna's dad, he had kidnapped his new daughter. Um, he had stolen a car, uh, and tried to make it from Southern California back to Iowa, stealing cars along the way. Um, and they, and they couldn't find him. Uh, so uh, that was a little unnerving, right? So we, had, we hadn't had any, com any, any contact with him from the time I was 10 until the time I was about 12 when we got back from, from Iowa. Um, and and uh, so I started, I started back this, at, at a new school again, uh, in between the, the ages of, from first grade to sixth grade, I went to six or seven different schools. Um, so we hopped schools a lot. Uh, by the time I, uh, so we get back from Iowa, um, start going to this school in, in, um, in, in Mission Viejo. I get called into the principal's office again, right? I spend a lot of time there. Uh, and the, the principal is like, hey, um, we, we have to let you know that your, uh, um, your dad is, is, is trying to get, trying to, trying to get a, a hold of you. Um, He's not on the list of people who can pick you up, um, but he called the school trying to uh, um, trying to to see if he could come pick you guys pick you up. Um, so we you know so we we talked to your mom. Um, I get home, my mom is just a wreck, right? Um, 
and it, it turns out he was he was uh, my biological father was trying to um trying to kidnap me and me and uh my my older brother uh it was a hard thing to, to think through right i mean you know you're <laughs> You're like the structure's finally starting to congeal, right? The jello's starting to, to get a little jiggly. Um, and then just this bomb of like, you know, your 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 biological father, who wants to be a dad, you know, I think. I'm not sure. Um, he's trying to he's trying to kidnap you and and he's just on he just showed up on American Most Wanted, so you know he's not a, a good guy. I'm like <laughs> in fifth grade, right? So I'm like how the heck am I supposed to do this? And at, the, and at this time I'm starting to like, listen to gangster rap and everything because that's what you do in fifth grade. Sure. Um, so, uh, so from that day on, um, this is, this is a, a really long winded way of saying um, from like, from like that moment on, uh, I guess um, fear or like, I don't want, want to say fear, like a, almost like a, uh, what, what dominated my psyche, what dominated how I thought about the world was you have to protect yourself. Like you have to, you know, cause I was going to, I had to go to school. I couldn't not go to school. Um, so I went to school every day with a knife. Um, and I had a knife in, in my sock. Right. And I still remember like what it felt like at the end of the day to, to get the knife out of my sock. Cause it would leave like this little imprint of the knife in my in my skin because it was pressed up against the, you know, and I, I had gotten called into the, into the principal's office after, you know, again, this, this time, cause you know, um, somebody had seen the knife in my sock and I, I told them the whole story and I was like, Hey, this is how I, this is, this is how I have to cope with it. And it was before schools were weird. So, um, he just kind of took the knife from me and was like, don't bring knives places. So I just put another knife in my sock. But like, that's what, that's what like, that's like what dominated how I thought about myself in relation to the rest of the world. Right. Um, so you're not asking me any questions, by the way. Oh, I'm no, no. For I, like lots of knots. No, no, no. <laughs> well, so what, what ends up happening with your biological father? How, how are you able to, is there any closure? Is there any like, okay. And then we were at least safe. Um, to oh. move forward in life because you, you described yeah. beginning to end just growing up with these atmospheres of just danger there's just the world's a dangerous place people are dangerous people you're supposed to trust can be the most dangerous you know do, are you able to ever have any closure on that or a sense of safety moving forward from at least from him yeah no um the the most the most recent contact that that we that we've had with uh with my biological father was um he found out that my, my grand, my grandfather recently passed away, um, about, about three weeks ago. Um, and he found that out and started, started to contact my mom, contact my older brother, trying to, trying to find me. So no, <laughs> there's, there's, there's no closure there. Um, did they ever catch, catch him? I mean, they're looking for They him. did. Yeah. yeah. They, they caught him. Uh, they found him. They put him in jail. Um, he's he's spent his entire life getting uh, going in and out of jail. Um, he had a uh, um, he had to have a partial lobotomy because he was in a um, he was in a, a drug deal that had gone really bad, and somebody hit him in the head with a baseball bat. Um, so his skull uh, was was crushed in, and so they had to take out part of his brain. Um, and as a result, he has he has seizures, but 
um, that that's a story that I that I might tell <laughs> a little bit later. But but that's that's a background hum of my life. Yeah. Um, I was just talking about I was just talking to my mom about this, and it's a strange thing. Um, it's it's anxiety inducing. <laughs> There's like this almost like a phantom, <laughs> like who's who's constantly. Yeah. you know could at any moment and it's strange when it, when that person is your is your dad you know um the lord's given me some resolution there that i'll that i'll talk about in a little bit but well let me ask yeah, that question then about about the lord at, at what point does does the church always have this category uh teenage years like at what point does the church become not just another enemy of the good or or another failed uh help um, but becomes something that is even viable for you. That seems like that would be a pretty far bridge. Um, so, yeah. so that's a, that's a good question. Um, most of high school, I don't, I don't remember, um, which is strange. I remember like little, little snippets. And I think it's because of trauma, um, just growing up weird. Um, but I, I don't really remember uh, a lot of high school. My senior year, I remember because it's when I, I met my wife. Um, my beautiful and wonderful wife, whom I love dearly. Um, she's called Jen. Yeah, she's wonderful. Met her at the end of my junior year, actually. She, we, were, we were in a math class together. Um, she, was, <laughs> she was like a sophomore and I was a junior, right? So I, we, had, we were in the same math class. So that tells you that she, <laughs> she did math. and She I was good did, at math. I, <laughs> yeah, and I just didn't do school, right? Um, <laughs> So we, we meet, um, and uh, over that summer, I was supposed to call her, but um, I went to Santa Cruz instead, uh, so I didn't call her. So the first day of school, my senior year, it's her, her junior year, my first day of school, senior year, she comes like running up to me like angry. She's like, you said you were going to call me. And I was like, hey. What's I say things. <laughs> <laughs> I just say things sometimes. This was, this was, I, yeah, of course I, I did. And what had happened was I, I totally lost her number altogether, right? I'd been thinking about her all summer, right? But I was too cool to say that. I was like, ah, I was in Santa because, you know, things happen. Um, and I go, but there's this cool movie out. It's called Romeo and Juliet. We should go. Let's, Let's go. Let's go. Juliet with Leo, with Leonardo DiCaprio. DiCaprio. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so we did. Um, so I, I, I met and fell in love with my wife, my, my senior year in high school. Um, I went through high school without any kind of relationship with the Lord. I, I, I went through high school with, without, uh, with, with a lot of mysticism. I even got involved in like, like legit magic, like, um, like not even like new agey thing, like, like, like legit, like, like magic. Old school magic. <laughs> Yeah. Like like a like paganism stuff. Like um, uh, what you read about in the scripture when it talks about diviners and magicians. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah so straight I, paganism. Just straight up paganism. Yeah. yeah. Um I I had gone to some some weird store and they were like, Oh, you're a healer. And you know, you tell a kid with my background that they're any yeah. kind of special. And I was like, Yeah, I'm a healer. That's right. And I'm a healer. You get a cloak, do you place. get a hood? Yeah, that's that sounds awesome. I got a wand. Yeah. It was a healing wand. <laughs> I only think of like the magic like trick shop, you know, but you you're legit in a space for a period of time. We don't need to spend much more time there. It's just amazing to me, in which you are genuinely like conjuring and doing like trying to do stuff to yes. change yeah, yeah. the way the physical universe functions. 
Yeah. Healing circles. I was, I, you know, did healing stuff, uh, played with crystals. This was, you know, 15, 16 years old uh, around that age. So, uh, but what that is to say is like the, the mystical realm is still present in my life, but you know, I'm feral. So right. when you're feral, you're pagan. You're a wild <laughs> pagan. Yeah, absolutely. Countryside. Yeah. But I'm in Mission Viejo, California. So, um, <laughs> so I'm, so I meet my wife my senior year, um, and or I start dating my wife my senior year. We're deeply in love, um, and I, I need to try to to, to um, scrunch up this story. Um, I, I had a Bible, um, and and I didn't know what to do with the Bible. Uh, but when I when I graduated from high school, Jen was still in uh, Jen was still in high school. Um, I had a job where I worked overnight. I worked uh, 12 hour shifts from seven, from 7 PM to 7 AM. Um, so my days off uh, were really, really lonely because I, I had to, you had to keep that, uh, you had to keep that, that pattern. So I'm newly out of high school. Um, my, you know, my girlfriend is, you know, has, has a normal life. So, so she's, you know, she's doing her normal thing. Um, and, and, and I'm like, you know, all day, every, or every, uh, every day of the week, I'm up all throughout the night, just mm. sitting up and there's nothing you can do at like four o'clock at like three, four o'clock. You can't like go somewhere. Um, there's, so you just have to sit, right. There's nothing you can do. Um, and you know, with a, with, with a, you know, kind of a past like mine and a brain like mine, it, it, it got me into some really weird places. Uh, so one night, I was sitting, sitting in my room, uh, in a really, really weird and dark, dark place. Uh, and I had a, I had a Bible, um, I had a Bible. And for some reason I had this Bible hidden in a drawer in my closet with a, in the same place that there was a bottle of Jack Daniels. Um, I don't know how the, I don't know how those two things, somehow they both needed to be in the same place. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sitting in my room and I have, I have to read the Bible. Take up and read, Jess. Take up and read. I don't know how else to say this. And I've never done that before, right? The closest thing to any, any touch, any touch points of Christianity in my life have have been the Catholic church. My mom had kind of started to dabble in again. We had gone to Catholic church on, on Christmas, this sort of thing. But it was, it was so far away from reading the Bible was, was ridiculous, which is why the Bible was, was in a, a drawer with Bible Jack Daniels, like being hidden from the world. Like, yeah. um, so I just have to read the Bible um, this one night. Uh, and um, I didn't know where to start. Right. So I kind of like flip through and, you know, I see like, there's a, there's an old Testament and a new Testament. I'm like, well, I don't want the old one. So I go, <laughs> <laughs> so I go to the new one and I start thinking like, Oh, you know, I'll find the, I'll, I'll see if I can find the Christmas story. So I flip through and I end up in, in, in Luke two. Uh, and the Lord's like spoke to me um, through the scriptures. Uh, and, and it's pretty easy to dismiss when you, when you've, when you've had like a, you know, when you, when you've just heard all the story of the amount of trauma that's been in my life, um, it's pretty easy to dismiss something like, oh, that is sure the Lord's like the Lord spoke to you. But like, I'm, I'm telling you, there's, <laughs> there is no reason for me to have opened up a Bible and, 
the stuff that I the the stuff that I got from that first time ever reading the Bible um, was was consistent with with like a what I would learn later is is you know millennia of Christian tradition um, uh, with uh, consistent with a with a God who who I've met in this Bible who who I've met every day of my life since then, right? So there's this consistency that, that I can say, I can point back to this and I can say, no, no, this wasn't like a delusion. This wasn't like like just trauma. This was like the Lord spoke to me in the scriptures and and that night began to save my soul. That night began to like provide structure. That, that night provide, began to, to provide solace. That night began to provide protection. Um, and and began to to save me in a way that I that that you know I'm still being saved today. Uh, but the thing that 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 really struck me uh, was that it was it was it was Luke two right. So it's um, the 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 shepherds on the on on the side of a hill right on, in the middle of the night in the middle of the night right. Um, and I'm there in the middle of the night uh, just a, just the guy right. Um, and the heavens are opened to them, right? The angels descend upon them and, and commune with them. And I, I can't tell you how, um, how incredibly comforting it was to know that those shepherds were spoken to by the creator of all existence. Um, because I was just the equivalent of a shepherd three or four o'clock in the morning being spoken to by the creator of all of existence. And my whole entire reality folded in on itself. Right. Um, So that began the, the, this kind of like shift. I, I, the the next day or or maybe it was a couple of days later, I, um, I, I, I started talking to Jen about this and I'm, I feel like I'm like, I felt like I like started to kind of like, I was like, I don't know what to make of this. I didn't know what to make of it. So I, so uh, I remember this really, really clearly. Uh, me and Jen uh, were we we were going on a walk, and we were walking around this park by my house. And I I started to tell her, you know, I um I gotta tell you something. I'm I'm really like I'm weird about this. Like this is I don't know how to say this. And and she goes, well, you know, she's she started getting nervous. She didn't think I'm like breaking up with her or something. And I'm like. I think we're supposed to start going to church. Like, I think we're. <laughs> I, 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 so I tell her this whole story. I'm like, I think the Lord. I think the Lord. I think God. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't have said the Lord. I think God, like whoever that person is or whatever that thing is. Um, I think he. I think he wants something from me, and I remember that. I remember feeling like like um, he wants something from me. And I didn't know what that was. And I remember like, like, well, the, the rest of my life has got to be like, I got to figure out what the heck he wants from me. Right. Because like, you know, he's this, he's this obviously caring, loving person who cared enough about these shepherds who cared enough about me to, t- to talk to me and like, well, shoot, like, let's, let's start doing this. Like, like, like how, what do I do? Um, so I started going to, so we started going to Catholic church uh, that after that conversation, Jen, Jen was like, Jen was like, yeah, I, I think he's actually saying the same thing to, to me. Right. And I was like, oh, cool. Let's do it. Let's do it. Like we have to, let's go do. So, so we started going to, to uh, the Catholic church because that was the closest thing to, to a church that I'd known. And, and 
how to respond to that. A um, couple of years later, we ended up, um, I, you know, I, I proposed and, and we ended up uh, having to go through the rite of Christian, Christian initiation for adults. Um, I was uh, initiated and baptized in the Catholic Church at, at age 23, I think. Um, Father Jim, I still remember Father, Father Jim, um, wonderful, kind, patient man who loved the Green Bay Packers. I couldn't, I could never figure that out. Um, but he ordained us and, or he didn't ordain us. He, he, um, he baptized me, um, confirmed Jim, and, and then um, about two years, about a year later, um, married us. So, so that was the shift. Um, it was, it was this, this meeting of God in the scriptures and needing to respond to him, like, like needing with my whole life. Yeah. I knew my whole life needed, needed to be, needed to be uh, lived towards him. You married Jen. I'm, I'm there. I remember this. Uh, hmm. I give a, I give a, I want to say famous, maybe infamous. Dude, I- I have so much guilt about this too. Dave gave Dave gave the best best man speech at my wedding that, that anybody has ever given to anybody. This thing was wonderful. He invented he invented a child, an illegitimate child that I had. Oh, it was so awful. Was, wasn't he called or something? <laughs> Which means song of my soul and the child's song name. Song of my Dunk. soul. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, more than half the room didn't know what was happening. I think you told me I had carte blanche. I could say anything I wanted. Yes. I asked. Yeah, yeah. And you said you can say anything you want. I said, "Are you sure?" And you yeah. said, "Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it." Yes. And I was like, "All right." And so, yeah, I told a very <laughs> straight-faced story of a former life in which you had a child out of wedlock. That. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a rough. <laughs> that I, that I, and I and I met his mother while scaling the Pyrenees. Yeah, the right? Pyrenees. And most of my and most of my family didn't even know where the Pyrenees were. Right. So- <laughs> I tried to give clues that the story was false, but it was a lot. It was a lot going on at once. And uh, yeah, and I said the Lord was going to judge you. It was like a really weird like speech to be saying like this is by the way this is a reckoning. The Lord's going to judge you for all these things. <laughs> and then I immediately shifted. But Jen is amazing. And, and there's just like no apology, no laugh. Um, and I remember as it's happening, I remember having that feeling inside, like, you just got to keep going. You just got to go. go. Yeah. Got to go. Run. Um, anyway, so apologies. Uh, much too late. No. For, um, however, that didn't go over with, with people. But uh, your family, your family was at one table. And I remember like yep. Rocky and Dom and like... <laughs> I remember oh, they like two, two or three people were laughing and came up to me afterward. Yeah. And then I remember looking at a sea of faces that were just thinking all sorts of different things about you now. And, uh, and I realized, well, that's done. What's done is done. And uh, there's no apologizing at that moment. for. <laughs> so, so Jen's family, you know, for those of you, most of you who would listen to this, hopefully <laughs> Jen, the, um, Oh God. To, to explain the difference between Jen's family and my family is I, I don't, it, it's, it's hard. Um, when I first picked up, uh, when I first went to Jen's uh, house to like pick up, pick her up for her, for her first date, I want to be sure because pickup has a lot of 
Sure. Meetings. But you know, when I first picked Jenna for, for our very first date, um, I showed up um, reeking of cigarette smoke uh, with a Ramones t-shirt on before Ramones t-shirts were cool, um, right. a leather, a leather jacket. Um, and her, her mom, rightly so almost didn't let her go. <laughs> I mean, she's, she was from as like white bread family as you can possibly get. Like they are, they, our families are very, very, very straight military. Most of them are, are military. Most of them are, um, can I say waspy? Uh, yeah. Most of them are very waspy, and Super and waspy. yeah, so so poor woods in the middle of this. Uh, it this was sea a grand, of it was a grand old time, um, <laughs> but but it was awesome. You guys got married. It was like you know before anybody I knew, you know, it, you guys got married. You know what I mean? Before that became like trendy, <laughs> you know, your peers at a certain point, all your peers start getting married or whatever. But you guys were like, the, you know, really leading the pack. And, uh, and I remember being like, oh, this is crazy. You know, I was like everyone watching like, oh, this is what the future looks like maybe for some of us. And, and so I was like watching you guys, you and Jen was like, okay, all right. That looks like it's a real thing. All right. All right, all right that looks kind of cool. Um, and then, and then moving forward, yes, a jump. But, um, I also remember the same thing when we found out that Jen was pregnant and I remember being like, oh my gosh. Okay. Like, I was just catching up to like, you know, getting married as well. And like, you know, you were always just a little ways ahead. And I was able to kind of watch it and say, okay, I think I could probably participate in this reality. And then I remember being like, oh my gosh, she's going to be a dad. Like, whoa, like, I'm just, you know, okay. I don't think I'm, I, you know, I'm just going to watch that. How does that play out or whatever? I remember the excitement. I remember the church. I remember like all our peers. It was like, oh man, we're praying. We're excited. We're like, we're so like, like nervous, excited. Like this is, it was new for not just you, but it was like new for our little community, our little church. By that point, you were a part of a part of this fellowship. And, and it was just like, oh man, this is wild. And for the first time I remember talking to, you know, Jake and other people being like, oh my gosh, it feels like it's like happening, like to, to my family. Like it, it was the first experience in, in many of our lives where it was like the, the idea that the church becomes a family was like, really alive it was like oh my gosh this is like this feels so personal and yet it's not me <laughs> you know it's like it felt like that when when you guys when jen when jen was pregnant and you guys were heading toward this like new life and this new existence and i just remember feeling like oh my gosh this is crazy and we're like we feel so like caught up in it and bound up with you guys in it and then it was not quite what you expected. It was, it was something that became um, a great challenge in the midst of blessing. And so that's the, that's the chapter. That's the move now. What, what happens in that moment um, with those expectations, with, with all the things um, when, when Elijah's born? Yeah. So let me tell, tell that story uh, a little bit. Um, so I, I was just finishing up seminary when, when Jen got pregnant. Um, and there's, there's nothing that I've ever wanted more than to be a dad, right? And really specifically to be like, like a hockey team. <laughs> like I wanted to, I wanted to like, like outshine the neighborhood with eclipse the world with my children, right? Um, it's something that I've just always, always really wanted. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you can look back on, you know, all of that stuff and say that there was, I want a redemption or something like that for my childhood, but 
I don't really care about any of that. All I care about is that's what I wanted, right? I wanted to be a dad. Um, so uh, when when Jen got pregnant, man, we were ecstatic. Um, and it was just the neatest thing. Um, it was the coolest thing to plan. It was the coolest thing to like to like go to the stores together and pick out cribs and do all the all the planning stuff. Um, and to plan and to plan and to plan, to plan the house. How is the house gonna be? How is what are the colors? Um, what's his name going to be? His name was always going to be Elijah. Um, just always going to be, it was going to be Sophia that was a girl and it was going to be Elijah. Like never had a doubt about that. Right. Um, when, uh, when Jen was in her third trimester, just the, just the beginning of her third trimester, um, she started to leak amniotic fluid, um, and so she was in, in, she was hospitalized. She was, she was put on hospital bed rest. And uh, that was hard, you know, um, all of our expectations, all of our hopes, all of our everything is, is, you know, just like somebody just, you know, threw the, the emergency break on us. Um, we couldn't figure out like, like what was going, like what was going on? The doctor still didn't know what was going on. Um, she just had way more amniotic fluid than um, than a person showed when they're pregnant. Um, and what that meant was, on a daily basis, they would come in um, and do ultrasounds on Elijah. Uh, and so, we on a daily basis were getting to, to see that everything was okay with Elijah. Every single day, we we got to see and see him right. And there was something really cool about that, about like, you know, we, we kind of got to like see what his face looked like. We got to, got to see him. So um, on the on the day that he was born, um, he was he was born on just on the cusp of when when you're uh, when. Yeah, he was born just on the cusp of when the NICU nurses and the NICU staff didn't have to be in the room during the birth. Right. So if he was born a day later. By hospital policy, the NICU staff and NICU nurses would be in there. Uh, because he was born the day that he was born, um, we had a very, very full birthing room. Um, it was, you know, her OB, all of the nurses, and we had lived in the hospital for a month, right? Over a month. We had lived in the hospital for 75 days or something like that. She had her baby shower in the hospital. Um, she worked... <laughs> With her, you know, her laptop on her belly, and it was, it was super cute. And I've got pictures. Um, so we had been there for a long time. So the 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 room was full, right? The room was so full that you know there were there were lots of there was there were lots of people, lots of excitement, and the whole NICU staff knew us and was just kind of sitting off to the side and just gabbing. Um, and when Elijah was born, um, when he came out, um, you. Uh, you, you kind of see this in like TV shows and things like that, uh, where where the where doctors' faces change, um, and especially in a in a birthing room, right? There's all this happy excitement and all this happy stuff. But um, right when he came out, everybody's face changed. Everybody's face changed, um, and it was it was like really hard to like. And I remember, I remember being there and like, I had to, I had to have, I had to be administering oxygen to Jen because it was a long, it was a hard, it was a hard labor and everything. Um, and I had to be giving her oxygen because her oxygen levels would dip every once in a while. Um, or maybe they were just giving me something to do so that I didn't pass out or something. Um, but 
so it's hard for me to like to you know my family is there right my family is there and immediately like i have to figure out how to be a dad and how to be a husband in a in in a time that was hard like like from from the moment of birth it was like you know and and i remember i remember kind of talking to the lord um, a little bit later uh, about this and and him just kind of reassuring me that like no no I, I i gave you this family i gave you this time you're the person that i need here or that i want here right now um so i had to be that person i had to immediately figure out how to be that person um so i had to you know i had to be looking at jen i had to be smiling i had to make sure that yes the countenance of every doctor of every nurse that was there these people who are supposed to be professionally stoic who are not being professionally stoic, I had to find, like muster every bit of emotion in me to make sure that that um, that my family was assured that my family had some had had some peace right at that moment. Um, they they didn't say anything about what was going on with Elijah. Um, they just immediately uh, put him on an incubator bed. Um, and started working on him and started, started getting him to breathe. When, when the doctor held him up, normally the first thing that, that the doctor does is either hand the baby to the, to the, um, to the mom or hand, her, hand the baby to uh, the dad. We didn't get to hold Elijah until he was almost a month old. Um, and she, she held him up so that I could see him and he was limp, completely limp. His eyes were open, but he's completely limp. Didn't move anything. You know, his hands were, were his hands were flopping to his sides and this sort of thing. So they immediately got got him onto after we saw him, they immediately got him onto a bed and started working on him. Um, and he 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 couldn't breathe. Um, he couldn't breathe. Um, we would find out later, um, after a really, really long time in the hospital, that he has something called um muscular myopathy he's he's basically on muscular dystrophy is on is on a spectrum so he's basically on the muscular dystrophy spectrum um and in, in spite of the fact that we spent you know uh days on days looking at him and, and everything seemed like it was going to be okay uh, everything was not okay when he was born um it was a hard it was really really hard it was a it was a hard day um my first response was to get Jenna cheeseburger because that's what she wanted. Um, we couldn't see we couldn't see Elijah. Um, they they wheeled him out of the room on the on the way out. Gosh, I remember this. This was crazy. Um, on the way out, um, they were he was in in like a clear incubator when they were they were taking him out of the room. And I said his name. I said Elijah, and he turned his head and like opened his eyes and he he saw me. Like it was oh it was so cool. Um, especially because I hadn't seen him move. Um, and it was just, it was cool. It was a little gift from the Lord that like, you know, that things were, things were going to work out. So I got Jenna, I got Jenna cheeseburger. Um, and I went to, uh, uh, I brought her up the cheeseburger, made sure that she was okay. Um, I think her mom was there or something like that. So I kind of tapped somebody else. In and I went into the chapel um, and I just broke down. You know, I just like, was on my on my face. I remember being just on my face. Um, there, the at Saddleback. I don't know if this place is still there, but at Saddleback Hospital, there was this cool chapel. All they had was this this cross 
it was made out of something funky. I don't remember what it was, but I was literally on my face. Um, and again, I heard the Lord really specifically um, quote scripture to me. You know, this sickness does not lead unto death, but, the, but to the glory of the Lord. Um, and like, like I know after all of the stuff that all of the anticipation and all of the, all of the emotion and all of the, everything was supposed to be, you know, fixed by having a family or something like that. And that, that kind of, that, that collapsing, maybe collapsing that, that seemingly like it, like it could have collapsed at that point. Um, I know that if the Lord didn't speak to me at that moment, um, things would have, things would have been, things would have been different, but he did. Um, he, he spoke to me really, really clearly, clearly again, spoke, he spoke scripture to me in a way that I, that was irrefutable. Like it wasn't, wasn't something that I could, that I could have mustered. He, he spoke to me in a way that like, that I could have assurance that there was divine intervention in my life. Um, and, and it was that, just that little, just that little speak, speak, speaking his, um, just those words that got me through the next four years. Mm. Um, yeah. So Elijah was, um, the next day was helicoptered to, uh, children's hospital of, of Los Angeles, uh, where they, um, where they put him on, on every advanced, uh, piece of breathing apparatus you could possibly put somebody on. Um, everybody's really familiar now after COVID with, um, uh, with with ventilators and how ventilators work, uh, it's even even though you're familiar with it, you're not familiar with it. Uh, it's it is a complicated thing. The Lord has designed our bodies to work in in just the right way. Um, the first day that that Elijah was was at CHLA, um, they were trying to get his ventilator settings right, um, and they ended up exploding his lung. Um, so he uh, he had to have immediately. Again, no anesthetic, a, a surgery where they, they, they um, split open his, his chest and they had to put a chest tube in immediately. Um, the doctors, again, were, you know, they're trained to be stoic, but they, were, they would tell us on a pretty regular basis, this is, this is an ugly situation, a bad situation. It does not look good for your son. Um, mm. And for, for probably the first, gosh, for probably the first two weeks, um, we, we were told that pretty consistently. Um, so, you know, we were, we were there and what was really hard about us being about Elijah being there was that, uh, we, the hospital policy was that we couldn't, we couldn't sleep in his room and there wasn't any place to, um, to stay in LA. So we had to drive back and forth every day, uh, to, to, from uh, from the hospital down our home in Aliso Viejo, and then and then back up to the hospital, and it was hard. Um, you know, we'd, we'd wake up and and drive up to the hospital, spend all day at the hospital, uh, come back home, and it was it was really harrowing. I, I like I don't know I don't know how to like how to communicate that. Um, it was really harrowing. Every moment was dramatic. Every moment, like. Um, it was life or death, like, like multiple times throughout the day, 
for he was in he and he was in the hospital in the NICU for about six months, and it was it was for the first especially for those first three months, it was literally like completely harrowing, completely harrowing. So it was hard. Um, the the my my devotional life at that time uh, turned to turned to Revelation to the Book of Revelation, um, and. And throughout that entire time, uh, I just I stayed in the book of Revelation. What I needed to know, what I needed to know was that, um, that there was a telos, you know, I needed to know that, that, that there was a God in charge, <laughs> that this thing, no matter how it ended, this thing was going to end well, you know? Um, and I remember, I remember going back to Jen and we, at night, um, after nurses did their rounds and everything, we would, we would take a little walk around um, a little courtyard in, in the hospital. And, you know, you gotta, you know, you're, you're a dad and you're, you're a, you're a husband. So you have to, you have to be ministering to your wife and ministering to your, to your kids. You gotta be ministering to people around you. And I remember talking to Jen and just, and just trying to comfort her with, with and the Lord knows what he's doing. The Lord knows what he's doing. He's, he's put us here now, which means that, if he's put us here now, which means he's, he's equipped us, he's given us. And, and as we move through this, he's going to be equipping us. And as we, we don't feel like it, but we, we can do this right. We can do this the way that he wants us to. Um, he's going to give us the strength. He's going to give us the comfort. He's going to give us all of the things that we need. Um, as long as we have that, that idea of like, you know, he's, he's put us here now. He's put us here now. Um, so that, yeah, if, you know, if I had a Christian mantra, that would be, that would be it, you know, because <laughs> we've been through a lot of stuff and that's been the, that's been the consistent message is, is, you know, for such a time as this, he's, he's called us here now, right? Like, um, yeah, so, uh, to, to kind of push a little bit of fast forward on, um, on that story. I'm so sorry. I'm talking so much. Tight. No. Ask somebody like me to, to talk about them. Uh, and, uh, oh, uh, it's, 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 it's real. It's real life. I mean, what, what more important stuff would someone want to spend a few minutes, you know, on their commute, you know, listen a little bit more to for me, right? Like I, to just remember, you know, you guys, you know, and it was always shadowy. It was hard to see. You could you could just sort of guess or imagine what in the world. Like, I remember when you brought him home, and I remember Lisa and I just going up the stairs at your house and just seeing like the more normal rituals of like you know getting him ready for bed and you know you putting on music on your iPhone and and always like reaching deep to just be in a good mood and positive and, and bring in, you know, joy and, and not like having what's going on with your care for him make set the tone, you know, but having some kind of other thing, tell us the Lord's some, some hopefulness, some positive thing, have the, the set the tone instead. And I remember just be sort of being, Lisa and I just being in awe of, of, seeing people we knew but then sort of like man we don't know them <laughs> the lord has them in this place that we can't really touch but but seeing and i remember the walk or the drive home just that first time we were over and just being like 
there's something like over this home and over you guys. It was like, just exactly what you said, like the Lord is, is making them able for what they need to be, to be his parents. And, and it is in a different realm. It's, it's got a, it's got angels. There's, there's an angelic shepherd thing going on here that we were just sort of like, we peeked in a couple of those moments um, and just remember feeling like, sort of just awe and reverence at what the Lord was doing there um, because it was beyond us and it was beyond you guys, but you were in the middle of it and it, we could just feel it. It was, it was incredible. It was, it was, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. The, um, uh, I do, I think about those shepherds a lot. Um, because that's you know that's how the Lord snagged my heart, right? Um, and they they didn't know um, what they didn't have was uh, a clear picture of of what was actually happening, right? They didn't have they didn't have anything close to like. They didn't, they didn't know that like, you know, 2000 years ago, their story would help to convert, you know, stupid Jeff Carlucci on his bed, right? Um, all that they knew was that there was a power that was present that they had to respond to. Um, and so they did. And I don't know, um, I felt like most of the time that Elijah was um, interned, um, so for uh, for people who, are, who would be listening to this, uh, Elijah was on uh, full time ventilation, so he had a machine breathing for him even after he came home from the hospital, uh, twenty four hours a day for the first year of his life, um, and then he still had a tracheostomy. All of that has to happen through a tracheostomy because you need you need what's called a secure airway, right? Um, if you if you have just a mask over you that's that's supposed to be breathing for you, you can't. You, you know, your tongue will get in the way or something will get in the way. So they, they cut the tracheostomy. Um, and if anybody ever wanted to hear this whole story or needed to hear the whole story, you, you could <laughs> find me and I'll tell you more about it. But um, they cut the tracheostomy. They, they, they put him on the full-time ventilation. We had to go through classes. We had to, before we could bring him home, we had to prove that we could care for him. So we had overnights and we had all these things. We got him home and he um he it was wonderful the first night oh my gosh <laughs> so we had full-time nursing uh nursing staff and the first night the first day that he's there uh the the nurse the poor nurse none of the home nurses were, were could possibly be trained to, to, to deal with a kid in, in this situation right and um and so the, the, the poor nurse didn't, didn't know something about the equipment. And so there was, this, there was this catch in his tube that would catch moisture that was coming from his lungs. And, and instead of running back into his lungs, it would go into this, in this little, like, like a catch, like a picture of just a little clear plastic cylinder. And it caught all the moisture. Well, the tracheostomy goes right into your lungs so your your mouth blocks a lot of like moisture and, and allows you to, to cough things out um well this nurse didn't didn't know that the catch was there so she lifted up the tube 
and poured all of that water down into his lungs. Um, the, the first day, this is, the, this is literally the first day. So I was, I had finally gotten to Target to like buy some diapers or something like that. And Jen calls me saying that like, you know, his, his oxygen saturation dipped, his heart rate's way, way low. Um, you know, and so I was just like, call 911. Right. So the doctors or the, you know, they, they, they call 911. And in the meantime, we're, you know, poor, this poor nurse, again, this poor nurse, God bless these people. Um, this poor nurse, like, like I get home, I race home. Right. Um, I probably, I left whatever cart that I had there. I, I pro I was definitely breaking some laws to get home. So I got home, um, kind of run upstairs. Jen's already working on Elijah. We, we click into like, get stuff done mode right and then the poor nurse is like terrified in the doorway right watching these two people like you know you know get this kid back to where we get him stabilized right we get we get the the uh the the liquid suction out of his uh out of his lungs and everything um and he's like as soon as he's stabilized he's totally fine right just staring at you kind of He's got this beauty, these gorgeous, beautiful blue eyes, giant. Um, and right when he gets stabilized, the nurse walks up with the fireman because we had called 911. Yeah. <laughs> and the firemen walk in and they're like, <laughs> and they're, you know, they're like, they're they're like, you know, what um they're they're looking around the room and they're they're astonished that we have all this medical equipment. They're like, you have to tell us that you have this medical equipment. <laughs> We're like, we didn't know who are you? <laughs> so so um and, you know, and uh, I, I, I tell this story because it, it ends with this connection, right, that Elijah has with the fireman, right? That after everything settles down, the firemen, like, stop. They, like, pause. And they, like, everybody, like, like uh, the, the problem goes away. And all of a sudden what you have is a, is a baby with firemen in the room and that's like a cool thing right yeah. <laughs> like, so like and and like the firemen remember like oh we're, we're firemen and the baby like remembers oh, i'm a baby and like you know it, it's cool all of a sudden right and and so the you know the, the, there's a there's like a, a totally human interaction right so um and and that's that's a, a that's slightly microcosmic right because we've spent a lot of um elijah's life uh, being, being kind of a problem I, and, and not like anybody would look at us and say like, you're a problem, but there's a, there's a problem there. Uh, we were walking through, um, we were walking through, uh, Costco one day and this, and, and Elijah had his tracheostomy and, and his, and his, uh, um, his ventilator and a woman walks up to us and she goes, uh, she didn't see all of this stuff. And she comes around the front and she goes, Oh, she goes, Oh, what's wrong with them? Jeez. And like, he's the first thing that she says. Right. And like, he's, you know, he's there. Right. Um, but that's how, that's, that's how we were approached, whether, whether it's like, Oh, what's wrong with them? Or like, as this, as a thing that's happening. Right. And it's in these, these tiny moments where it's, where it's just a, just a baby and some firemen. Right. That it's like, no, like this is just humanity. This is, this is the stuff of life. Right. This, this really is like, like, you know, yeah, sure. He's got a ventilator and stuff, but like, we'll work through that. We'll work through a ventilator. Like we don't have a, you got to do that. 
but what the important stuff of life is, is like a, it's a fireman and a baby. There's an opportunity for the fireman to like, like hang out with a baby and a baby to hang out with a fireman. So that was cool. Um, so we, you know, we made it through that. Um, after, after three years, Elijah got his um, tracheostomy out. Um, he, they, they took the trach out. Um, after he came off the ventilator, he still had to, had to have the tracheostomy in. Um, so he went to, you know, he started going to pre, uh, pre-kindergarten and preschool uh, with a tracheostomy. <laughs> and, you know, like these poor, and, um, you know, I don't, I, it's, it's really hard to talk about a lot of this stuff because I, I never want somebody to, to like look for things with, with Elijah, right? Because if you don't know any of this, like you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see it, but um, but Elijah does have like, he's, he's still got it's globalized muscle weakness. Right. So like for a long time, if he, if he falls or something like that, his, his arms can't get out in front of him fast enough. So he would have, you know, cuts all over his face because he would, you know, he'd fall and just he'd cut his face up. Right. Um, but, uh, <laughs> like, like the, the poor teachers, that <laughs> and, you know, um, he would okay so like he kept on falling off of the the bench at lunch right because he doesn't have he doesn't have the you know just this the stuff to to keep himself up and 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 he, he can't like catch himself so like these poor te- you know the poor teachers would be like you know oh, you, well he you know he like oh he's he's falling off the things and and trying to like they feel guilty and they feel like they should be doing something and I, all that's to say, um, he grew up with a, with a lot of normalcy, um, but he also grew up with, um, you know, a lot of times people just dealing with him with like kick gloves and having to like, you know, so the, the poor guy's got a lot going on, um, <laughs> but he's a wonderful kid. You know, if you, if you meet him, he, he loves battle bots. We just, we just got him some battle, but he plays battle bots. He's funny. He's funny. He's brilliant. Yeah, he's he's just the sweetest person. And yeah, and like you say, it's 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 more about people. It's more about people, right? Like the, the those reactions. It's it's like it all it reveals something about us, you know. It's like it's like it's like we expect, you know, things to be a certain way, you know, and and we all do, and we all have these micro or macro reactions in our own lives or when we're around people when things are just not what we expect it's like so much of life seems to be you know that way and then we continue to go back to expecting them to be exactly what we always thought they were supposed to be but never have actually been and and it is it is just an incredible thing to see you know what like your story with with you know as a dad your story you and jen your story together um and even just the story going all the way back to your childhood, right? Just to to try to put something on this, you know, as as a description of a life that I characterized at the beginning as resilient. And 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 you highlighted moments um, of the Lord's clear intervention in ways that you saw, and and then you also highlighted moments where you said things like. There was a little more structure. There was a little more something. There was a little more something in which, you know, looking back, you know, might be able to see the Lord and here and there and everything else. But, but, 
the resilience of a life, um, the resilience of a of a Christian life. It's one thing to be resilient in life the way you grew up um, and and you're just surviving. You're just making it. You're just doing what you got to do. You're just being a person um, to be then a Christian husband, a father, um, and to be resilient with all that life has brought. And, and again, I said this at the beginning. It's not until COVID for many people in, in recent experience that people have generally and then genuinely had to find resilience in themselves. And many of us have found we are not. Many of us have found uh, we would rather rebel against reality than find a way forward with reality that we never wanted or expected, um, but, but real and, 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 and then say, I need to find the Lord here. I need to find the Lord now. Um, and I need the Lord to get me through this reality. I did not plan or expect and all these kinds of things. And I know one's not like the other, but, but to see how hard that has been for a relatively cosseted or comfortable culture of Christianity, look at the pastor stuff, but, uh, (laughs) But it is incredible. It's embarrassing. It's 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 unnerving um, for the experience many people have had in that you know we stopped connecting with the Lord, stopped our devotional time, mm. had shorter fuses, had had you know had challenges that caught some of us off guard. And then as it has kept going, and as we speak to this day, you had to leave a job. You you are homeschooling your son. He can't be out in the world. I've been back in restaurants. I. Our church has met in person and you guys can't be there um, for protecting your son. And, and so even when the world gets its little bits of normal-ish stuff or we're used to that, you guys still don't get that. You still, you, you know, you're still on the high side. You're still on the edge of what is required to be resilient. And yet, you know the Lord and you're not just like anyone else walking around who might not know the Lord. And so, and so hearing your story and, and then thinking of how present it is, um, you know, Elijah's gone from strength to strength in, in so many ways. And like you said, you wouldn't know and all these kinds of things. And, and that's fair to him. You know, the Lord has other things for him than just this story. Um, but it is still to just be reminded of the fact that like, you know, we, we need to learn a resilience and we need to find a resilience in the Lord that, you know, used to be an option before. And now it's decisive. It's washing people out. People who don't have it are leaving. They're leaving the Lord. Some people are leaving their families. Some people are bailing on life and its responsibilities. I mean, so much of that is so live right now um, in this season we're in. Um, what would you say? I know it's another totally unfair setup, totally unfair question to end with or whatever but and maybe it's something you've been saying but what would you say to those man i didn't expect life to be this hard whatever that means for them I and mean, i respect that people have harrowing stories that i'm often you know maybe not not allowing them because i just don't know right but let's say let's say life whoever's listening to this life is genuinely not going how they had planned and it is much harder than they had planned or realized or feel prepared for in whatever way and, and let's say it's a legitimate feeling even if if it's lighter than other things or whatever give the full range um for those who know the lord or maybe once knew the lord 
what would you say has been the way that you've been able to hold on and not just hold on, but thrive and prosper and grow with Jen and your son and just, you know, your life? What would you say to, to someone who needs, a, who needs to know, like, the Lord's still the Lord? Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I would, I would say. Master um, Jess, can you uh, give yeah. us 10 seconds? <laughs> To solve. Yeah, gosh, that's, that's a that's a hard one. That's that's the stuff of the of, of the pod, right? Um, I, I, I'll how about if I, I speak for a little bit from my experience and then extrapolate from that, and, and I'll try to keep it brief, which is really really hard for me. Um, uh, in in retrospect, I can see that the Lord has has equipped me every step of the way. Um, but I have to have looked, I have to look for that sometimes. I have to be willing to have been equipped, right? So, um, you know, uh, when Elijah was in the hospital and things were looking super dire, I I said, I I had just finished seminary, Mm. right? So I was coming into that with, with having spent my entire life for three or four years all day, every day in the scriptures, trying to know everything I know about Jesus. So that when, when I ran into, when I ran into a place that didn't look like Jesus was, I, I knew how to find him because I've been looking for him for, you know, all day, every day for so long. I knew, I knew his voice. I knew what he sounded like. I knew how he dealt with me. I knew, I knew, I knew how to be pastored by him. Mm-hmm. I knew how to be a sheep. Mm-hmm. I knew how to how to like just rest in him. And 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 not because of anything that I did, right? But because he had set me up to do that. And and I guess my I guess so I guess what I would say is um coming into COVID, uh it's not a mistake that that the Lord has placed us here, right? He's called us to do something. He's just like he called those shepherds, right? Just like he called those, he's, he, you know, hey, um, you have to go worship the, the new baby Jesus. Um, he's, he's called you, he's called you to do something. He's, he's called you to, to have a way of life. He's called you to have a way about you. Um, that could be like a, like a, like a, a, a really specific call. You know, he's called you to start a blog. Probably, he probably hasn't called you to start a blog, um, but <laughs> yeah. he could, he could, Please, he's, no. <laughs> but he's called you to do something. He's called you. He's he, he is an active God. He is a he is a God who is every step of the way for those who are listening. He's speaking and he's saving with his speech because that's who he is. Um, so I don't know. To I guess to 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 maybe put a to put a bow on on all of that. You have to know God. You have to know Him, and the only way to know Him is through Christ. <laughs> So if you know God in Christ, when you get to these, when you get to these moments, when you get to those, those moments where the doctors are all looking at you, like, we don't know what to do. Uh, when you get to those moments of, you know, the principal looking at you saying like, you know, your, your, your dad's trying to kidnap you. When you get to these moments of, of life that you are going to, to hit, you, you know, the tell us, you know, revelation, you, you know, the fact that he's, He's standing before you saying, I, at some point, I'm going to wipe away every tear from every eye. 
And at this moment, you have to have, a, you might have to have a tear. <laughs> at this moment, you might have to in, endure a little bit, but know that his salvation is coming because that's who he is. And his salvation is, is present right now. Um, I don't know. Um, I have to be careful, but uh, when, when I look around at, at what my life could have been, um, what my life should have been statistically, when I look at, when I, when I, when I think back at um, statistically where I should have, where I should be, um, I can see so clearly the Lord's provision for the small places in my life where I've been faithful, small, small places. I, I can't say that like, you know, um, all of our stuff with, with Elijah, I had been faithful. There, there were times where, where I, I, you know, I would lose my temper with nurses. I would, you know, I would try to force my will on things. I would try to, I would do what a lot of people are doing right now in the pandemic, right? You know, you just kind of like make a reality for yourself. I, there were times where I, where I tried to do that. Um, but in the small little places where I was, where I was faithful, the Lord grew those little mustard seeds into, you know, homes for birds. And, and that's what's, that's all that he's calling us to do is that's all that we have to do. Even in the, even in the face of a worldwide pandemic, you know, even in the face of a traffic jam, right. Um, It's a little mustard seed of, of faith. And, and if you can't, like, if you can't, if you can't find a place for that faith, I want to assist you in finding a place for that faith. Know that he has given you life. (laughs) Know that he's, he's given you life. Like he's just, he's given you something. He's starting his relationship with you. He's starting whatever it is that you're trying to get through. He's starting that with a gift. He's starting that having already given, right? And you can have faith that he's going to continue to do that because that's what he does. He's going to continue to give that life and he's going to continue to tease that life out of you and tease more and more life out of you. I don't know if that's clear or cogent, but that's, Preach. that's been, that's been the stuff of, has been the stuff of, of our life. Um, I'm, I'm so thankful. I, I also have to say, I'm so thankful for a church that can be, um, that can be uh, respectfully present in, in, in a lot of the, the crap that we've been through. Um, and well, you guys are well loved. And all I can say to all that you've said is amen and amen. Um, Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time to, to show us a little bit of your life and the Lord in your life. And I know because it's the Lord and because of that, tell us the best is yet to come. That's our time, my friends. If you would like to support the podcast, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And if you would like even more content and to become a patron of the podcast, head on over to FromBabylonWithLove.com, click on newsletter, and sign up there. Until then, many thanks to producer Zach Leach for all the twists and turns, and to Lonesome and Muddy, the only house band that'll survive the apocalypse. This has been From Babylon with Love.